Welcome back to Couch to Couch, Making Therapy Make Sense with Chuck LeBlanc. Today we have a special guest. I'm really excited for the guest today. It's Alex Mateus. He grew up playing high-level sports, soccer, basketball, weightlifting, and eventually football, graduated from the University of Connecticut on a full athletic scholarship, and was drafted first overall in the CFL draft by his hometown, the Ottawa Red Blacks. Through playing on the Red Blacks, he has been able to represent the city on, on the field in Grey Cups, as well as in his community. Alex works with multiple charities, including Christy Lake Kids, Ottawa Regional Cancer Foundation, and the Royal Ottawa Mental Health Centre. Since retirement, Alex has been working as a commercial real estate agent and continues to advocate strongly for proper mental health care and education. Well, welcome to the show, Alex. I'm excited for you to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you're welcome. So what I wanted to do is, uh, before we get started, I wanted to invite you to fill in any gaps that I might have missed from, from the bio here and let the audience know uh, more about your background. No, I think the bio uh, really did cover a lot of it, um, you know, as an overview. And I'm, I'm just really happy to be here because I've always felt it was a duty to give back to my community. And that's strictly just because... I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the people that supported me. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up in, my dad was a soccer coach. So throughout my early childhood, we were always around clubs and older kids. And I always remember the the older guys in the men's premiere, they'd always kind of take care of the younger guys and bring us along. So the idea of like a hierarchy chain of kind of help was presented pretty early, but mm -hmm. through all the community work, I just get a tremendous response with all the mental health stuff that I uh, do and, mm. you know, whether it be sharing or attending, you know, I've raised a little bit um, and the return that I get and the, the feedback that I get from the community is just like fantastic. And, you know, because of that, it makes me kind of see that I should spend more time here and that there is mm. some value and, you know, there's opportunity for me to, you know, kind of share what I've been through, listen to other people and continue this conversation about mental health because physical health, we all know, we all discuss, it's easy to monitor and to plan it and kind of put some numbers on it. But mm -hmm. with the mental health, I think it's a little more difficult to make it objective and that might make it a little, uh, not scarier, but uncertain. There's a little bit of unknown mm -hmm. if you're going to be kind of diving into this world. But the way that it was introduced to me was just a performance psychology aspect. Mm -hmm. Growing up, you know, my parents brought me once to a, um, like a psychologist when, when I was in high school and, you know, struggling a little bit and just being a kid. But my real thorough introduction was in university it was framed as a performance psychology, but all it was was talking about everything else that wasn't football. Mm -hmm. Like for the most part, we weren't talking about football, even though I was there to help me with football, to get me through everything. And uh, that really did kind of open up my eyes and through that process, you know, now 12 years later, it's uh, something that I'm thoroughly enjoying. Um, and on a little bit of a crusade to just, you know, share my experience and, and continue this conversation. So um, I think what you're doing here, Chuck, is fantastic. And just looking forward to listening to your, answering your questions the best that I can. Awesome. Well, thanks. And you, you have a significant background. And I know the advocacy work is really, really important to you. 
And I like how it's all drawn up within the community, right? I mean, I don't have to tell you this. You're the sports guy more than I am. But it's all based on team and community. It's that, yeah. that like, we all lift each other up together and we put ourselves down together. And that's kind of the game. And so when it, I know with mental health advocacy, but also mental health care, like on my side, part of the reason I started the podcast was because there is a lot of stigma when it comes to mental health. We know that. I mean, that's why there's things like Bell Talk, Let's Talk Day and things like that. But I was finding that um, despite mental health being a little bit more easily to talk about nowadays, it can be confusing to know how to talk about it. And so I like what your, your distinction between physical and mental, uh, because that's what you find. Like if I hurt my arm, let's say, you know, like uh, last year I hurt my rotator cuff and I was in like physio for eight months. Well, I couldn't open a door handle, so it made perfect sense for me to have to take care of my shoulder that whole time. It was physical, it was affecting my day-to-day life, but when it's mental, we have so many of these um, advice from all around, like pull yourself up by the bootstraps, especially as men, toughen up, suck it up, just push through it. It's not that easy. It's not that easy to do. So we don't really have a lot of ways of talking about or seeking out, how do I even ask for help? So I think that the work that you're doing where you're sharing your experience uh, especially from a sports side, as a Red Blacks player, like you're a very accomplished um, athlete from all the walks. I know it's weightlifting, all of it. Coming from that side and then bridging into mental health makes a lot of sense. So, well, I, I I love that. That's one of the themes that you're you know you want to continue and to grow because has someone with the experience that can understand and bridge the gap between you know where i am as a patient and you know not really experienced with like the education whereas you have that and you're looking to bridge that gap between like a practical reason on how people Mm -hmm. can attend and i'm looking forward to to hearing about you know how you're you're setting that foundation Mm. and it really starts with the experience piece so what I know that you mentioned a little bit about, you know, you got into the mental health advocacy through sports psychology and your experience with that and how through those conversations, it was more about not about the sport, right? Because you're, you're looking at like the mental blocks, uh, retooling a little bit, understanding the context of how you're seeing whatever it is you're seeing. Yeah. So what was it that kind of sparked it for you where you started to realize, oh, wait, there's something to this? One of the first one was one of the first moments was when I was at Penn State, my first year of college. So I graduated from the University of Connecticut for and I played there for four years. Before I transferred there, I was at Penn State, um, which was an insane introduction to American football, mm-hmm. uh, that culture, and uh, that was a tough year. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of like the mental health, the cycle of football within a year for anyone that's not familiar camp usually starts in august and you get four weeks just the team isolated in dorms and you practice minimum once a day every second day you're practicing twice a day uh and it's just like content heavy x's and o's technique everything Mm -hmm. to get you ready for that season because of the unique aspect of football that not a lot of people get that you know, firsthand um, experience and mm-hmm. taking a look at, but it's just so much information um, that you have to memorize. And after that four weeks, you usually have 
the season from September up until December. So you have 12 games and then from August, so it's August to December. And then you also have in the spring around four weeks, five weeks of what they call spring training camp. It's the other rules. It's how the NCAA regulates how much we can be on the field and how much the coaches can can work us. Mm. And in those spring practices, as much as they're just practices, they are intense. Mm. Not just the pace and the content as well, but the eyes and the presence. Mm. So, for example, at Penn State for the spring practices. You practice twice during the week, a Tuesday, Thursday, and then you'd also practice a Saturday. That Saturday practice is a little more of a live game focus, mm. whereas during the week it's breaking down this little aspects and um, game situations where Saturday is a little more live. And so at Penn State on Saturdays, they would allow guests in the media to come watch and within the small little stadium, they would put up temporary bleachers and there'd be 10 to 15,000 people within wow. this small dome that fits two half football fields. So not even just a little bit wider than a football field and mm. like 10, 15,000 people packed in there. So to prepare for that, uh, that Saturday, during study hall, where all the rookies spend uh, spend their time during their freshman year, just mm -hmm. to keep an eye on us, getting used to the schedule. A couple days before the Saturday practice, they had a sports psychologist come in, talk to the rookies, and he gave us a couple tips on how to handle that pressure and that scenario. Mm -hmm. But the one specific piece that I really took back was, he said, if you ever have a bad play or you know, in front of these 15,000 people, you drop the ball and now all the avid Penn State fans don't see you as, as like a real player in mm -hmm. their future. One of the things that he would say is when you go back to the huddle, take your mouthpiece out, put it back in. Mm -hmm. Or I'm, uh, I'm Velcro your gloves, put the Velcro back in, fix your knee brace. And so... At that time, you just kind of hear it in, uh, um, as a tool mm -hmm. that you want to adapt, you want to implement a routine. But later you start to realize that it's not just this subjective idea that this one gentleman thought of to share with us. Like he's actually just trying to reprogram us and condition mm -hmm. us and, you know, um, really decisions how we approach these stressful situations. Um, and I just remember that being a uh, being a very valuable lesson. Now it's kind of my first introduction to, to the sports psychology, mental health aspect. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, so that was my first very basic introduction. And then, you know, onto the the real desire and push to kind of get into the nitty and gritty aspect of the mental health mm -hmm. was at the University of Connecticut after two years being there. I was supposed to be the the next center, the next starter, you know, kind of where the future of the offense, offensive line should be. And it was during camp, first couple of days, I hadn't really uh, approached my mental health. And the biggest thing that I always struggled with ever since, you know, puberty, uh, 11, 12 years old was sleep. I just 
and it's been you know from the age of 12 until when i was at yukon which is 21 was you know nine years of just like struggling to fall asleep maybe getting a couple hours waking up groggy and then kind of going about my business um and so for the first couple of days during camp i wasn't sleeping and it happened on the third day i woke up during practice i mean when you don't sleep for three days right you're not functioning properly so during practice i was like hallucinating i wasn't standing up properly a gentleman on the other side of the ball the defense ended up throwing me to the ground and i wasn't shouldn't have been thrown that easily mm -hmm. and i was thrown into the, the star on the defense's leg uh broke his knee he was supposed to he was it was his draft year that year mm -hmm. so he was projected to go early up in the rounds uh, luckily he was able to come back and play a couple games and he still got drafted, but like later in the draft and not where he was actually projected to be. So, you know, it, it's a long lasting negative effect, mm -hmm. but it's not nearly as bad as it would have been. Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't, these situations don't completely determine how we turn out, but you know, obviously the severity of them change based on the outcome. Mm -hmm. Um, not that anything's possible in terms of coming back from, but mm -hmm. uh, that instance specifically was a little bit of a saving grace um, in my mental health. But at the moment, at that time, it was it was tough. So yeah. after practice during that day, the rest of the team went back to the locker room, stayed on the field, and just like like broke down. Right, like my whole identity is wrapped around football. I'm absolute trash in school. So that was never an option for like a, a real option for me. Um, the thing that I wrap my whole identity around is like breaking down and I'm a couple years into college. This isn't my mm -hmm. first year at Penn state, right? This is my third year of five. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't even close to working out um, or approaching that success and dominant feeling. So from there, I had a buddy and he just stayed, he just stayed with me um after practice we didn't talk at all but uh you know i still stay in touch with him casey cochran uh he's gonna be coming he's in my um he's in my wedding party we're going to the uh, bachelor party in november so awesome <laughs> I, I still stay in touch with this guy and he's an absolute beauty he's handled with uh, you know he's managed his concussion and mental health as well so it's definitely something we we talk about um mm -hmm. and grow you know, as we kind of share uh, the difficulties of it, but he stayed with me after practice, Casey. And from there, I decided to approach and, and use the free resources that we have at, at university and being a football player um, to go to a sports psychologist because mm -hmm. I wanted to go talk to someone about my mental health so I can be a better football player. So I thought we were going to talk about football stuff, mm -hmm. um, you know, and with the psychologist, I probably saw her twice a week for, you know, a month or two, then once a week for a couple of months. And then I see her, you know, every two weeks and then every, every month. But that whole process was probably, you know, eight months with her. Mm -hmm. From there, she then um, it was time for me to kind of graduate to a psychiatrist within the school system. And before he kind of started prescribing me or or necessarily like diagnosing, uh, diagnose me or anything like that. Part of the process was to go, 
join group therapy. Mm. So I went and did that for a whole summer. Um, everyone was off campus. So I think that also kind of helped. Uh, you know, I wasn't walking into the building with people walking by. And, um, I don't know. It just felt a little, a little safer. The fact that no one was on campus, it was mm. just like pretty quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, talked to him, did the, did the, the group therapy, therapy for that summer, talked to him a couple more times. And then, you know, from there, he diagnosed me with type two bipolar. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I take some medication for that, uh, you know, and, and I'm, I'm always working on my sleep in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but as much as like a as much as solutions change and i think that's true for everything mm-hmm. uh, i've definitely seen that in the physical health and that continues to be a true theme so i would imagine it's relatively similar in mental health is mm-hmm. you know we go through life and things change and you know uh, physically we change as well like the chemical balances and you know how how we're conditioned mm-hmm. um but sleep has always been like the 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 pinnacle of my health and the more i focus on that and that becomes regulated the the better everything else kind of comes together. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, so from there, for the following two years of my college career, I would meet with them, you know, every now and again. And until, you know, if ever anything was kind of difficult, like through the draft process, um, you know, we'd meet once or twice just so I could kind of get a handle on the, the nerves and the mm-hmm. intensity of it, um, the possible failure uh mm-hmm. which is uh has much higher chance of happening than uh succeeding mm-hmm. and from there it's always been something that i've kind of felt has been a uh you know a tool in my tool belt uh, an arrow in the quiver uh you know i had that chance in college to take advantage of the resources and um it was it was readily available because on campus and um you know it was paid for as well but from that it's always going to be something that i'm going to look towards using as i go mm-hmm. through life i think that i i needed that year year and a half of really focused work and having multiple people help me and mm-hmm. you know whether it be multiple professionals as well as like my peers within the um the group therapy mm-hmm. and you know now moving forward like i'll go for three sessions, four sessions. If something's happening in my life, uh, you know, I don't really trust certain decision-making patterns that I've kind of developed. Just kind of understanding where I come from and my parents and situations, but there are certain places where I have to admit that I don't know a lot and I have to seek help. So I just go and I know the first session, you know, to give anyone a little background, but how these four sessions look for me would be the first one. I kind of just like talk and get it all off my chest. It's mm-hmm. kind of part of who I am and, you know, do bottle things up to a certain extent, but that's perfectly fine because I will release it at some point And I mm-hmm. understand, you know, you can't keep it in forever. Um, so first session, I'll usually kind of just like rant, maybe ask one or two questions at the end, if I have the chance. And then the following two, three or four will be more direct questions that I think might be helpful for myself mm-hmm. of course the professional on the other end is helping navigate me through the difficulties so they're definitely 
helping these other questions come up, but for the most part, you know, you, I just try to think about what's difficult. And then I ask, how do I handle this difficult situation? And not everything is a home run hit, but I think this is probably the biggest piece that I've kind of taken out mm-hmm. is just going to see someone changes how you're thinking about all your difficult problems mm-hmm. because right away you're getting someone else's experience. They are a professional and some of it, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but some of it's probably just based on numbers, but a lot of it is their experience and, you know, how they look at people and their EQ, which is obviously out of this world uh, more mm-hmm. than us, but have someone else interject in your thought process mm-hmm. relieves you from some of the responsibility of making it difficult within your brain, that mental health, right? Because yeah. even if you disagree with the person, all of a sudden you have someone else in your brain. It's not just you, right? That's like right. it's not just you struggling and questioning whether or not it's normal and Mm -hmm. if these difficult things are actually part of the difficult concept in life and struggling we all understand we grow from that but how do we know what we need help with what we don't if we've only just listened to ourselves and our inner thoughts and um that was my process through mental health i know it was short story and a little bit of a long one but i hope that provides a little bit of context and it's I mean, it's everything. The mm-hmm. If I think about, if I focus on how I think about an obstacle before I actually try and physically execute on it, mm-hmm. it, it changes the success uh, possibility uh, outcome just because you're thinking about it differently and you have to practice and, and fail. But that was a little bit of my experience and keep on uh, keep on using it as well. That's awesome. Well, I appreciate the walk down the memory lane there because there's a lot of highlights that are really important. Um, so, so many things in that. And I think one of the biggest parts that I'll, I'll talk about first is, is isolation, mental health. You know, we, we're talking a little bit about the difference between the physical and, and the mental when you have like something, something's going on for you. Well, when it's mental, because of the stigma that's out there, we can tend to not want to talk about it and isolate ourselves. So then we end up uh, thinking in a vacuum, I call it, and that, or, or stressing out in a vacuum where you don't have anybody else's voice there. You're yeah. unwilling to reach out to your community and community. I mean, human beings, we're social animals, so we heal in community. And so then we cut ourselves off. And when we do that, we only have our own tools and our own situations to see this particular thing. And we only have survival mode to guide us. And when we get so either embarrassed, uncomfortable, upset that we can't talk to someone else. We end up digging a hole in our brain because we can't get out of it. And it's, you know, you and I have talked about this before. It's not, it's not that something's broken. It's that we're only using what we currently have to try to sort it out. And we're doing it by ourselves. And most of these things you can't, you need an outside source. And one of the the beauties of therapy that I've always found as a, both a client and a therapist, is the fact that it takes a lot of it takes a lot of courage to call someone in the first place. And so as a therapist, you have my respect the moment you walk in the door because it's hard enough to, to realize you gotta talk to somebody and it's a whole other thing to actually show up. But once you're there, you get the opportunity to have a conversation with someone that 
means you're not alone. So you, you were mentioning, and I love the fact that you said this, that you know, just the, the act of going to see a therapist changes how you're seeing the problem. Well, one of the big reasons for that is because you're not alone. You immediately realize, I'm not alone. I can't, I don't have to do this on my own. And I also liked when you said you don't have to agree with the therapist because that's so important. Because it's not a situation where somebody's telling you, you know, live your life differently, do this, because I don't care how much education you have, unless they can like develop technology to put me in your brain. You are the expert in your own life. So we're here to have a conversation, throw it out on the table and see what we can do with it together. And at the very least, you have a second voice in your head that, and more information that you can decide how you're going to make decisions. I love that. And early when you're talking, uh, right in the beginning, you talked about being in an arena with like 10 to 15,000 people. You're young, you haven't been in that situation before, and then you have to perform. I was getting goosebumps as you were telling me that, telling me that because I don't even know how I would react to that situation. You know, it's it's almost like putting a guitar on for the first time and you've never played it before, and now you're a rock star. It's like Jesus, right? That's that's intense. Hundred um, percent. And I like the techniques. You know, one of the techniques that I use on both myself and teach my clients is it's called pattern interrupt, and it's a way to reset because anxiety and stress, like the survival instinct is a pattern that you move into and it's designed to protect you. That's like a really big thing to remember. Mm -hmm. But in certain situations, that surviving mechanism might be counterproductive. So it's not that it's trying to self-sabotage. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It just might be in a scenario where that's not going to work out the way you want it to. Mm -hmm. And so by like fixing your knee brace, unzipping, pulling your mouth guard out, you end up resetting because you're like halting the pattern. And then you have a minute to think, and then you can catch. It's brilliant, especially in a high-intensity situation like that. And it's so crazy because as like a 19-year-old kid, you're a freshman in college, you're not seeing it in that way. You literally just understand it as I need to, I need to uh, be a good football player mm-hmm. so I can get drafted, so I can make money. Therefore, I have to take my mouth guard out in between plays. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like the context of it, you really can't um, understand. But now, I mean, when you talk about it, it's one of the tools that you use. This is mm-hmm. your profession. Um, it isn't about sports, right? Mm-hmm. It's about how mm-hmm. we make those decisions. And do you think that is there, when you think about the patients that or the, the scenarios, you know, where people feel isolated before they actually go and talk to someone, is there a common theme or scenario that puts people in an isolated position or that mindset? Do you think maybe it's a lack of community or um, do you think it's like the ignorance or not, not really understanding the mental health aspect? Is there one aspect where you, or one place where you see that like drives that isolation feeling with the the patients and clients that you've had? Yeah, it's a, uh... I would put it under like multiple categories because multiple reasons, but I boiled it down to like one or two just for the sake of it. And that one of them is shame. One of them is shame, right? So if I got injured and it's like a visible injury, like let's say my arm was mangled, people can see that from a mile away and don't have to ask me or they don't have to look at me and go, I wonder what's going on. My arm is mangled. It's not working the way it should, right? Um, So then I don't have to anticipate someone's question because it's visible. 
But because of the stigma around mental health, you always have to think, oh man, if I'm dropping the ball here, um, am I going to be able to handle this? You know, are they going to hire me? Are they going to draft me? Like you were saying, uh, how, what is this going to look like at work? Um, or I, and my clients specifically are, are male or people who are identified as male. And so male socialization teaches us to be tough, to be a provider and to be fixers uh, for the most part. And so if you're having like anxiety, let's say, so let's, I'll explain this through my own journey. like in my early twenties, I was a bit of mix, uh, a mix between ignorance and shame. So in my early twenties, no one ever talked about mental health and not as it, not a taboo. Nobody literally talked about it. So in my, between 20 and 25, um, I slept three hours a night for five, six years. And it was, I didn't know why. I know now or after I was treated that it was like extreme anxiety from the life I was living, the stressful events that were going on and all that stuff. But back then I thought there was something wrong with my body. So I was having extreme chest pains, uh, night sweats. Uh, the insomnia was amazing. Like I just wouldn't sleep. I was always hyperactive. Yeah. And so I just thought my body was just doing its thing and like malfunctioning. So I went to the hospital like several times thinking I was like having a heart attack, all kinds of stuff. Uh, until eventually when I was 23, I said, oh, this must just be my body. <laughs> my body just sucks. So I might as well live with it. And so then I ended up continuing going to school, working full time. Like I had, it was about 70 hour work weeks included school or with school. And I just thought that's what my body did. And so I used my anxiety as like fuel to get things done. And I didn't realize until later that I was manic, which is a whole other ball of wax. Yeah. mentally uh, until I ended up talking to one of my professors at school and we, we, it was in the middle of my first year of my master's and a friend of mine had just passed away and I was not alive basically I was a zombie very unexpressive so my whole body started shutting down uh, in psychology they call it dissociation so I was dissociated most of the time and my master's thesis advisor at the time, who was also a priest and a counselor, started seeing some signs when I would show up for class and then mentioned to me, well, let's just, why don't you come for coffee, basically. Um, and then throughout that conversation, he helped me actually talk about it and actually identify what was happening. And that was my first conversation about it where I started to feel, it was like normalizing it. Yeah. I didn't realize yeah. so many people go through this. I did not realize that it was, you know, it was my body and my mind working in concert to try to get me to work something through. And I was basically running from it because I didn't know that I was running from it, which was a case in point with uh, anxiety because it was more anticipated anxiety, the worries about the future and things like that. And so when I started to talk about it is when I started to sleep. And it was a very curious mix of what happened and that's really what started me on my journey uh to look at psychology a little bit deeper and human capability a little bit deeper but a lot of it started from shame for me i was not able to you know if i couldn't sleep how was i going to go to work how was i going to do these things so i better figure it out my the only tools I had was to push through. So I decided, yeah. oh, maybe I only need three hours of sleep. Let's just keep going. But which is not recommended to anyone. 
<laughs> see a therapist if you're ever getting close to that. But it really had a lot to do with the fact that I was supposed to be providing. And that was a big piece of my identity back then. I grew up in a, a low-income household with parents who constantly worked. They, they were really good at taking care of the kids. Like My parents were always there, but my dad worked like 75-hour work weeks my whole life. Yeah. Somehow, I still don't know how he did it and raised four kids, but <laughs> thank God he did. Um, so I thought these things were normal, basically. But I also didn't have anybody to talk to about it because I didn't have the language to bring it up. I didn't understand what was happening. And so that was like a really big piece of the puzzle once I started. And so what I'm finding with, with clients who come in, it's a little bit of ignorance, but a lot of shame. Yeah. There's a lot of shame about feeling like there's something wrong, something broken, there's a problem. And so one of the reasons people don't want to pick up the phone to go see a therapist is because they don't want the therapist to tell them that there's something wrong. That's a big problem. And for the male side of the, the coin of what I've experienced is because it's weak. There's a sense of weakness there or that they can't perform the way they're supposed to. And what ends up happening is that you realize a lot of these mental health problems is not that there's something wrong or there's something broken. It's the tools that you have to defend yourself, to protect yourself, to engage with the world are doing exactly what they're supposed to do. Similar to what we were talking about with your story, like they're doing exactly what they were supposed to do. It's just, you are a different person now. In a different scenario. And the tools hadn't caught up to that. And so you're use, using like outdated tools to put it in a very like robotic sense, but it's a lot more emotional than that. But, and so there's nothing else you can do. And this is how people slip into all kinds of things like video game addiction, alcohol addiction, because they don't have anything else. How are they else supposed to deal with these heavy emotions, let's say? Uh, or for myself, it was like a, ca a caffeine, an energy drink addiction. Like I'm pretty sure in my 20s, my blood was like 80% energy drink and caffeine. But these addictions show up because we don't have the tools to manage them in any other way. It's all we got. So part of getting out of them is always to build the different tools and be able to get these emotions out to understand, you know what? Man, you're not broken. Yeah. You're just missing some tool sets and, and know what you're, you're missing a community to actually hear you to tell you that, yeah, this is normal. This happens. It sucks, but that's okay. I, I'm so happy that you went and were able to go see someone mm -hmm. because I think what you're doing is incredible, especially with this podcast, uh, specifically for men, mm -hmm. um, because I can only imagine how many men have been in the situation that you were in when there was no resources. Mm-hmm. Like when I think about my experience, like how tough it was and how hopeless at some points and, you know, suicidal thoughts mm. when like I had resources, I was wearing uh, free Yukon gear and I mean, you know what I mean? So mm. when I hear you talk about your experience, it just, I just, I think I, I love what you're doing and uh, you know, the conversation is going to continue to grow, but practical side of it is, is incredible. Mm. And, you know, there are a couple of uh, like parallel, parallel themes that we'll, you know, we'll get into eventually, but um, the sleep, 
mm-hmm. course, right? Like that's one thing that you're just like clear that you're, you know, we can't do or when we're really having that tough time. Um, and then when you, when you brought up the word shame, mm-hmm. it was never something growing up that I thought was, um, was an emotion or was uh, a, a discussion about how I would feel and what it might look like. But when my psychiatrist highlighted that and shared that, um, it did kind of change how I looked at those negative emotions and, um, you know, what I was telling myself and what my situation was telling me, um, you know, which was just really helpful. Uh, you know what I mean? And so I'm curious with that professor that you had, would you mind sharing what that day looked like when he came and talked to you? Was it after class? Was it before? Were you having a tough day? If you don't mind me asking. Yeah, it was in the hallway. I was just walking yeah. by because during this period of time when my friend passed away, I had, I basically would only show up to class uh, some of the time uh, in my dorm most of the time. And then I went and got a job um, overnights because I, I wanted to sleep for the most of it because I just yeah. wanted to like, I basically was moving myself out of the public yeah. eye, so to speak. And just in the hallway one day, they hadn't seen me in a while and they just started talking to me. That's it. Cause we're, we're close. The, the school I went to is a very, it was a very small school for my masters. So we were all, all of the professors and the students were very engaged. Like in my opinion, if you're going to do a master's like in philosophy and something like that, uh, that wild of a topic you're going to want a small community of people who know you <laughs> because it's yeah. such a confusing topic but anyway that's beside the point um so it was it was a lot like that that particular school is a lot like a community like a family in itself even now it's you know i've been graduated since 2013 at that school and every we all keep in touch the best we can mm-hmm. but they had just hadn't seen me in a while and it was just a simple conversation and i couldn't help it was the way they were, and they're famous for this, but how warm they were in the way that he was talking to me. I was just like, oh, God, I got to get it off my chest. And he yeah. saw it immediately and would ask. Yeah. And it was very simple, just like, how are you doing? I haven't seen you in a while. What's going on? Do you need anything? And I was just like, well, here we go. <laughs> the yeah. dam kind of opened up from there. It's crazy once someone that... One thing that I've found in the past in my experience is we listen to family differently. Mm-hmm. I think there's so much experience and subjectivity and we know the same people as well as not having any professional experience. <laughs> yeah. right? That's right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Um, but to have someone that doesn't know all those little details about you and when you get that experience finally of someone asking you a question and just looking at you a certain way and you feel like they can kind of read you, um, it's such a relieving experience. Mm -hmm. And I hope, you know, everyone gets a chance to, you know, feel that kind of comfortable way because it's almost someone with their body language and their question and their tone, they're almost kind of telling you that it's okay to be you right? Like the way that they ask that question and, you know, to kind of bring it to, um, to your story, uh, 
you know, when you were 23 and you were really struggling in your like first introduction and, you know, coming from where you come up, come from, there was the stigma about it. You, you really didn't even know about it. You really understand, mm-hmm. you know, there was the shame attached to it. Um, I kind of find that approach to the action of going and talking to someone is somewhat similar to a concussion. Mm. Um, I don't know if it is because of the brain, but you know, if it's not a concussion where you're like completely getting knocked out and flattened and like, you know, that you've been laid out, mm-hmm. uh, that is different <laughs> waking up with someone else. You don't really know what's going on, but those kind of in between concussions, whether they're just like someone hits you in the chin a certain way and you feel slightly off or, um, you know, I was playing a game. It was incredible. We almost won, but we lost, which is a typical theme at UConn. But, uh, uh, you know, we were playing in Yankee Stadium and uh, against Army, and one of my four buckles broke. So when I went on my next, con- next contact, the bridge of the helmet just, like, smushed into my face. Mm. Um, and I remember that one as, like, a pretty significant concussion as if I look back. But... I think the the dangerous thing that I don't know if anyone's heard, but the dangerous thing in sports is if you get that concussion, but almost more importantly, if you don't address it and you go back on the field, mm-hmm. right? It's that second concussion where, you know, some serious damage could be done. And here in Ottawa, uh, for anyone that that's listening, there's a, a, a young lady a couple of years ago mm-hmm. that happened in rugby and she died. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is something that they always tell us in, in football, but it doesn't matter how many times they tell you to go talk to someone, your NFL career is on the line mm-hmm. if they see this injury on the list, right? You're not going to play next week. You've been waiting your whole life and your whole identity is wrapped around this. So it's pretty, it's very easy, right? I'm in Yankee Stadium, the helmets get smushed on my face. Within a minute or two, you start realizing like, your vision's different, your hearing, your mm-hmm. sense, um, you know, you're kind of off. And you tell yourself, you're like, I'm just fatigued. Or mm-hmm. it's not it's not so bad that I, I have to go out the field. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not that extra. It's that you're telling yourself multiple times, like, it's not, it's not. Mm-hmm. But it certainly is a concussion. Like, you definitely have uh, some damage. Your brain is rattled around in your skull, like you are injured, mm-hmm. but you tell yourself that it's not. And I think that's kind of like a similar feeling with like mental health. You're just like, but no, no, but I'm not okay. Like, or like, yeah, that's but right. I'm fine. I'm fine. Um, so I appreciate you sharing that about the, about your professor, because that like day to day and that like specific example, I feel, you know, kind of helps, has helped me in the past wrap my head around mm-hmm. situations when you hear something so specific. Yeah, it's so important, and it's especially to highlight that because that's that's what's going on, right? You know, when you're anxious, stressed, depressed, you know, going to see a therapist isn't it's not like going to reattach an arm. Yeah. Right? It's it's really about going to a place well, that's the central the central tenets of being a, a counselor and a therapist. And you know, I always say this on my podcast and to every client, like if you don't feel this within the first two sessions, get a new therapist, like feel free to shop around. That's so important, right? 
But you have to walk into an environment where the therapist is non-judgmental, empathetic, and is there for you. And they're congruent, which just, and this is all coming from, uh, therapist's name is Carl Rogers. He like invented these central tenants back in the forties, fifties, and sixties. And he's the reason we have them because he was a psychologist and he noticed that there was a difference between telling someone they have a problem, coming in, doing a checklist and how they were healed, then just giving them a space where they can be human for a minute. Wow and actually get things off their chest and work with someone collaboratively, not someone who's there to just fix you. The concept of fix is a real big, like that's one of the big issues, right? But someone who can recognize that you are actually the expert in your own life. So I'm gonna collaborate with you because that's the job. I'm gonna collaborate with you. I'm gonna give a shit yeah. and we're gonna work on this together. And that the ability to be empathetic like that and non-judgmental is in my opinion, the the key to these conversations and they're the most important pieces because you know i i deal with men i say this a lot and my job is to be vulnerable with you and always up front so you don't have to guess what i'm thinking yeah because in most of your life because of the shame you're feeling over the stuff you can't do or the problems you might be having you're spending so much of your time trying to squish it down and making sure no one else sees that you're going to start anticipating what other people are thinking, right? Am I weak? Are they going to see that I can't do this? How am I going to blah, 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 right? And so a therapy session is all about creating a space. We call it a safe space, but all that means is this is a space for you. And that's it. You and me working on this together and no one's going to judge you for what you bring in because judgment has no place. And then we're going to work on that because I see you for who you are and you're human. That's it. The fact that you brought up, if it's not working after a session or two, to go try someone else, mm-hmm. I think that, I don't know, that's one of the most important things that I, I feel, right? Because mm-hmm. it's the discussion of it. But even if we're not giving people specific things to look at when they're kind of evaluating whether or not they want to stay with a certain psychologist while they're kind of figuring out whether or not it's working or not, I think it's, it's better to give them what you said mm-hmm. and letting them know they can go somewhere else instead of trying to specifically fix that one relationship with the one psychologist, right? Mm-hmm. Or really like, you know what? I just need to dive deeper in it. Or she's not good enough or I'm not in the right place, mm-hmm. right? To go to someone new is just like such a beautiful and constant solution mm-hmm. right it's like don't feel shame that it's not working for yourself like that's mm-hmm. perfectly fine go to someone else let's think that's that's, that's the right, most important right. thing it's like they're not stopping so i think to come from someone like you like a professional i think that's that's something that we should continue to discuss because i think there's like that might be one of the most like valuable things is uh, that, that just opens up the welcoming aspect i feel of, of mental health yeah, and it's so important. You know, uh, I get this a lot because I was a life coach before I became this. This is where I came from. And as a coach, some coaching styles don't work for everybody. No. Your job is to increase performance. And if your style doesn't work, you are not going to increase performance. You're going to increase shame. Because the your client is going to think, oh, there's something wrong with me. Why am I not getting it? But nine times out of ten, well, I would say almost every single time, actually, it's 
that the therapist, the coach, whoever you're working with, their style, personality, isn't a good fit. So it's very rarely ever about the client. And when it is about the client, it's not that there's something wrong with them. It's that they're not ready for change yet. Yeah. It's yep. just, and that's just a step. It's not that you're stubborn or whatever. It's just you're not you're not there yet. Can you work with somebody to get you there or do you need some more time? Fair enough. So my job within the first two sessions is to be like very real with people so they get an honest snapshot of how I work and with a completely open door so they can figure out, okay, you know what? I'm driving with this guy. Cool. Yeah. This is how it works. It's working great. I feel comfortable enough to ask the questions. And most importantly, if I'm not, can I ask my therapist to help me find someone better? Because that's like my job, right? And I think that's so important because I've talked to you for two sessions now. I've got a lot of background information. I should, most therapists have a big network of other therapists that they talk to. So odds are you don't have to go it alone. The therapist mm -hmm. should be able to help you find someone that's more suited. So that's one thing that I'm super glad that you brought up because I've never even, uh, no one's ever really even highlighted that with me or I haven't really heard that a lot, which I think is like super valuable um, because that's one of the biggest things that I've found as a, as a difficulty, especially even now coming back to Ottawa, you know, at the University of Connecticut, you're the resources are right there and the people are experienced and, mm -hmm. um, you know, it just makes sense based on where they are, um, in this scenario, uh, but in Canada or in Ottawa, I could go through the team and I did use, you know, one lady through them, but even for myself with like the, I think fast experience, uh, firsthand experience, mm -hmm. navigating and trying to find like the exact person on who to talk to, I find it a little difficult, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I don't know if I'm searching through the right place or the right person. So is there something that you would suggest to like myself or, or someone else that hasn't even gone and talked to someone first? Like, is there a, what would be like the first thing you'd put in Google? Is there, is there something like a way that, what do you think would be helpful for people? Yeah. So the first thing you put in Google is take the best guess of what's going on for you and type it in. Yeah. And then put Ottawa. So if it's like anxiety, let's say. It's like anxiety Ottawa. And a bunch of people will come up. And if that gets confusing, like one of the reasons I started the podcast was because uh, a bunch of my friends and siblings were looking for therapists and they would go on sites and they wouldn't know what they did. Like, what is CBT? What is narrative therapy? What the hell is all this stuff? Uh, so then they were looking to connect with bios uh, like on Psychology Today. Psychology Today is a fantastic search engine for therapists in your area. And you can see bios where you can start to get snapshots of personality. But at the end of the day, it's the very first thing you're going to want to do is see, okay, who's out there dealing with something similar to what you're looking to work on? Second thing, if you don't know what you're looking to work on, is hype on, uh, hop on to Psychology Today and type in your address like Kempville, Ottawa, Barhaven, and it's going to divide it into your area. So it'll show up all, it'll go Ontario specific therapists and then like Nepean specific or Ottawa specific, wherever you're coming from. And then read the bios and see if, if you don't understand the language, see if anything jumps at you, a warm feeling, a comfort, interest, 
Uh, I know I found like, my latest therapist was out of interest. Yeah. Uh, and so then I was like, oh, this is a neat therapy that I've read a lot of theory about, but I've never engaged in. So I went. Um, so always pay attention to your body as you're like reading it. And if something speaks to you, reach out because, and this is so important. We just talked about this. When you go to see a therapist, you're not signing a contract to see a therapist for the whole time until you're healed or you're sorted, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Yeah. You're there to figure it out. And then, and then if you're comfortable, give them a call. And you know, for me, I always do intake calls and the intake calls so that I can meet you and we can meet. And then you can tell me, you know, would you like to book a session? How are you feeling about it? And then we can book from there. So you can always talk to them. Be weary about therapists you can't talk to. Yeah. Um, because they might either be have like a full wait list and they just don't have time. And then you don't have to worry about it because you'll be waiting for months. Uh, or they might f not fit unless that works for you. Because some, some of them communicate through email only. So my point in saying all of this is, it's a very personal journey. Never feel like you have to stay with somebody because it's not working. Work with what your body is telling you and be open about it. Because the therapist's job is to make sure you're cared for and that you get what you want to get done. You get to the goals that you're looking for. They should never be the barrier that gets in the way of you working on those things. Because almost 100% of the time, if it's not working, it's just because the personality and the theory doesn't work. Not because the, you know, the issue is so complex, nothing. It's very rarely, if ever, about the client. It's typically about the therapist and what they're bringing in. But I guess I'm kind of talking about this like it's a little bit like dating in a way, which is kind of funny. <laughs> but yeah. it's person-to-person -person stuff. That's the whole point of this is therapy is person-to-person, human-to-human. So you have to treat it like that. Well, I, I think that's like super valuable and people should really, uh, you know, take notice of those notes and how to approach it because similar to what you had said is the most recent psychologist that you use or a therapist, I'm not sure what designation you could, uh, therapist, yeah. therapist. Yeah. Um, and so they said that you're, you still found one. Mm -hmm. This is your experience. You have, you're a coach here. Uh, you have education and you're still openly like going and talking to someone. Mm -hmm. So I think that within that, I think, you know, one thing that we all have to understand that's like the forefront is like solutions change and mm -hmm. it, you're not stuck with one place. And it is a relationship because things can uh, a relationship can be two things at once mm -hmm. right like it doesn't have just because it's not productive doesn't mean that either person doesn't care or they're not competent enough or you know you, you might not be in the right place but it might not be in the right place because the other person mm -hmm. right it's it you don't have to uh, associate something negative with like hopelessness mm -hmm. it's just mm -hmm. a learning experience about what didn't work and I think that that's something that, you know, I wish that, uh, I hope that people can really know because I see the difficulty, even with my experience back in Ottawa, finding someone, navigating the proper path and, you know, where I'm actually going to get help. So I think some people kind of, you know, I, I hope that people will find some value in that mm -hmm. uh, because I think it's very practical. It's not theory. It's not, um, you know, uh, just hypothetical. It's just 
very practical and an action item. You can try, yeah, that's right. it works, doesn't work. If it does, great. Move forward, learn. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and it's it's incredibly practical. And it, I think it's the way it should be, for personally. Like yeah. even with like coaching, you don't stick with someone if it's not going to work. Yeah. And it's very rarely you. And if it is you, it's just a readiness for change, which doesn't mean there's something wrong. It just means, you know, okay, maybe at this exact moment, I'm not ready to jump over that yet. Yeah. Fair enough. You have to pay attention to you. And if it's fear, well, when you call that therapist and if you're terrified, like most people are, I was, yeah. can that therapist ease that? So when you talk to them, is it like, oh, wait, actually, I could talk to this person. Okay, cool. I'll give it a shot. Let's see what happens. And then after two sessions, you're like, no, that was a terrible idea. Great. Then we'll help you find somebody better. That always should be there. And it always should be there because what I've seen it before, you know, uh, with people that are close to me, because I've advocated that they go see someone and going to see someone almost puts them a step backwards, mm -hmm. like almost kind of puts them in a worse situation than before they had gone because now they think that it doesn't work for them and that any psychologist would mm -hmm. be bad, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's it's incredible to know that you should, you should try different people and uh, it doesn't have to be one fit because I remember uh, it was after, it was in the period, you know, within university, but my last two years, so after the, the long mental health and the diagnosis and everything, um, so I was still pretty, uh, I was balanced and I was, had some coping tools and strategies. Mm. Um, and I just remember one of the sessions, uh, you know, that were like every month, I had just come back from March break and you don't get a lot of time, uh, off when you're in playing university football, they're paying $45,000 a year for your tuition. So they get the most out of you mm -hmm. Fair enough. which i understand mm -hmm. i get it right uh but so we it was one of the short times when i got the chance to go back home and it was march break and um you know nothing really changed that much uh but it's pretty pretty typical in the sense that i had all these friends that i wanted to go see uh people that have always helped me i've always enjoyed time with them and you know like any teenager, uh, you know, we like to party um, for multiple reasons, as well as like mental health. But, um, you know, when I started experimenting with cannabis in high school, it just was a pretty good fit. Um, I don't know, it just felt really comfortable for me. And even to this day, you know, I'm not a big drinker, but um, and it also worked for sports as well, right? You're not hung over the next day, you can get after it. Like, mm. you know, for the most part, you're hundred um, percent. And so substances was something that just kind of was comforting and um, was like, it was a solution, right? Mm -hmm. It changes how I felt. And, um, so to, to have spent two years in the mental health process, becoming comfortable, building the relationship with these, um, with, with these therapists and psychiatrists and, and everything. Um, one of the biggest things that I never really addressed and I didn't know like how to bring it up to people was uh, my substance abuse, mm -hmm. you know, um, from cannabis to alcohol and 
you know, uh, verging elsewhere from that as well. Um, like, I remember that being one of the times where I was like very nervous about sharing it uh, mm -hmm. because it's so, it's pretty clear to say that it's not productive. Mm -hmm. I don't think, I think that's like right across the board. I don't think that there's like, any context that would justify it. Um, and so I knew that I was going to get some backlash and, you know, like my family wasn't a big, wasn't like a big party family. And uh, although it was preached that it was a safe space at home, like it was. Um, but I mean, I don't know how to navigate the subject of drug use for my teenage kid, right? Like I don't, I don't know what that solution is. So I agree with my mom in the sense of like, she was against it. Mm -hmm. You know, no parent, I don't think would, um, you know, encourage it, but bringing that up was was like super nervous and I remember after saying it and like coming back from university after March break having um you know what I mean unfortunately succumbed to temptation when I was home and going back and talking to them I just remember their response being so productive and not judgmental mm -hmm. right like just not it had nothing to do about like who I was as a person and um, how I'm hurting myself, you know, and how it's unproductive. It was just, okay, like, that's fine. Like, why do you do it? What's the reason, mm -hmm. you know? And like you had said, how you open up the psychiatrist, like he shared something about his self, right? Mm -hmm. Like, about how, uh, how he used to smoke cigarettes and it was, you know, um, all the time and he finally quit. But the thing is like, he almost can't have a drink anymore because it just like, he wants a cigarette right away. Mm -hmm. And yeah, to have that discussion and not, not be judged by it, have someone help, not look at it the way that other we have, that other people have in the past, especially uh, like not psychologists and professionals mm -hmm. with the brain um and i just know people that have been in situations like that and shared very vulnerable details and have it's like these professionals chastise them for that or you know really put it in a context that makes them like feel terrible about mm -hmm. sharing or that um that there's a problem and not that there's a solution right mm -hmm. it should be that there's a solution and however you frame that it's not necessarily a problem right it just it is what it is mm -hmm. like it's just patterns um yeah to use shame is incredibly problematic oh my god and so i know the people that have had that and mm -hmm. so you know to go back to something that i think is tremendously important is shop around go to other people and you know if you can't have that discussion it's not your fault mm -hmm. uh you know you can find someone um and just like don't stop because you can find someone with a good fit, right? And having help like that and, you know, hopefully help that we can continue to provide that it'll help people navigate um, and find something that works for them. That's it. That's the most important piece. And I know that uh, I'll just leave it with this. In Ottawa, <clears throat> there's a pretty substantial network in Ottawa with therapists who communicate back and forth. Um, so when a client requests a different therapist, if they're just, it just doesn't work. You can give them more back information. Okay, this is why it doesn't work. This is what I'm looking for. And then therapists have a place to connect with other therapists to yeah. see if they'd be a better fit. And that's part of the game. So when a therapist doesn't do that, 
as problematic. Um, and that's just that's just the way it works. We're here to help. And we're not here to put barriers up in front of you. And that's just the end of it. Well, awesome. Well, this has been great. Thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, we went through a whole bunch of themes. I think this was a very rich episode. I'm really excited for you to be here. And there's definitely more for us to cover as the days go on. So we'll definitely have you back. Thanks so much. Um, what a comfortable conversation and to hear your experience and the diversity between your personal experience, your professional and your understanding of, you know, that there are other solutions and to share that is uh, very valuable. So I'm just glad that I can attend and looking forward to, to, to our further to our conversations in the future for sure. Awesome. So am I. All right, everybody. Thanks for paying attention and listening to this episode. If you have any questions or want any feedback, comments, you can reach me at Instagram. So that's couch.2.couch uh, at Instagram. And you can also look up LinkedIn for Chuck LeBlanc or Charles LeBlanc. I think it's Chuck LeBlanc. I'll have to put that on my Facebook now that I'm screwing myself up. But anyway, thanks for paying attention. We'll see you next week. Take care. Mm-hmm.